Hello and welcome to another episode of the Annick Castle podcast. I'm Daniel Watkins. And I'm Deborah Beecroft. And on today's episode, we'll be travelling back just over 100 years to the First World War to tell some of the stories of the people who lived or worked at Annick Castle and its estate at the time and the part they played in this global conflict. What you'll hear in this episode is based on the exhibition created at Annick Castle to commemorate the centenary of the First World War from 2014 to 2018. Research for the exhibition revealed that over 100 members of Castle staff and three members of the Percy family served in the war, while at the castle itself, other Percy family members took new roles to help with the war effort, and a military training camp and convalescent hospital were created on the pastures, the land just north of the castle walls. On this podcast, we'll be focusing on a selection of individual stories, with quotes from newspaper articles, letters home, and other correspondence from the time. We hope you enjoy the episode. Lord William Percy, a younger son of the Duke of Northumberland, was on an ornithological expedition in Siberia when his ship's radio picked up parts of a transmission that suggested Britain was at war. William hurried back from the Arctic to join his regiment, the Grenadier Guards. He served for five months on the front lines in France, and his letters give an eyewitness account of life in the trenches. As William put it, my point of view is restricted to a certain area of ploughed fields knee-deep in sticky clay, intersected with trenches full of water. In a letter to his father, the Duke, dated Christmas Day 1914, William wrote, Today is a day of very welcome peace, and the only sound of war I can hear is the firing of some of our own guns. I believe that in places the two sides have arranged a sort of unofficial armistice. Last night we had to go out and dig a new trench. We got away without having a single shot fired at us, and only a little promiscuous sniping during the whole time and only one man hit. The reason of it was that the Germans were all singing in their trenches, and apparently having Christmas trees by big fires. I thought they sang wonderfully well, but I'm no judge of music. On the 11th of March 1915, William was shot through the thigh at the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle in France. He lay out under heavy shell fire for nearly two hours, and lost a lot of blood before stretcher bearers reached him. From September 1915, William served in Gallipoli, and for the remainder of the war in Egypt and Palestine as a military legal attorney. After the war, William resumed his interest in ornithology, becoming a well-respected and well-known authority on the subject. James Burns had retired from the army in 1907. Originally from Manchester, he took the job of gate porter at Annick Castle, controlling entry and access to the castle. He re-enlisted with the Northumberland Fusiliers in 1914, and served as a quartermaster sergeant in France until at age 51 he was considered too old for active service and was sent to Yorkshire to work at the officers' command depots. James returned to his role of gate porter after the war. The role was a forerunner of my job today, which is head guide, as Burns took hundreds of visitors around Annick Castle sharing its stories. From 1931 he also became the Duke's piper, playing the Northumbrian pipes outside the castle barbican each morning, something he continued to do until his retirement in 1945. He had a level of fame in Annick, with the local paper publishing an article about him by the cleverly named R.E. Porter, People I Meet, custodian of Annick Castle tells his story. Arthur Fullerton was a dairy assistant in Hulne Park, just west of Annick Castle, 
and a 1906 photo survives of him as part of the Park Farm football team alongside his colleagues, including his brother Jim. Arthur volunteered for service in August 1914, at the very beginning of the war, and after completing training, was sent to Belgium with the 7th Battalion of the Northumberland Fusiliers. On the 16th of June 1915, Arthur was killed near Hooge in Belgium, a few kilometres east of Ypres, when his commanding officer had been ordered to hold an area of trenches, whatever the cost. Sergeant Smith of the 7th Battalion wrote a letter the following day that appeared in the Annick and County Gazette. It said, We have had a very heavy loss, a good number of Annick lads being killed, including poor Arthur Fullerton. He was killed last night. His brother Jim is all right yet. Tomorrow is Waterloo Day, and I expect a wholesale slaughter. Lady Margaret Percy was 40 years old when the war began. When the Annick camp was set up in front of the castle, Margaret would often be seen alongside her father, the 7th Duke, during his regular reviews of the troops there. In the autumn of 1914, refugees from Belgium began to arrive in Annick, and Margaret helped to look after these new arrivals. Meanwhile, in the parish hall, she gave weekly French lessons to soldiers. Lady Victoria, Margaret's younger sister, was commandant of the Voluntary Aid Detachment of the British Red Cross Society. In this role, she coordinated donations to the society and organised accommodation and facilities in local hospitals, as well as helping to set up the Duchess's School in Annick as a hospital for soldiers. Their younger sister, Lady Muriel, was 24 years old at the beginning of the war. She looked after dependents, the relatives of Castle and estate workers who had gone to serve in the armed forces, making sure they received any funds meant for them and representing them to the Duke's Estates Office and the Central War Office. Joseph Forster was a plumber's labourer who served in the Northumberland Fusiliers. He was taken as a prisoner of war and died in Germany in September 1918. Joseph's descendants still have photographs, letters and postcards belonging to him and his family, as well as the items he had in his possession as a prisoner. Joseph had three daughters, Mary, Grace and Izzy. Mary once wrote to him, My darling daddy, I'm quite well and hope you are. We're all very sorry about you. I still go to school yet, I'm hardly ever off, and Sunday school too. I've got another little kitten. I've not much to tell you just now, so I will close. From your loving daughter Mary, we pray for you every night. A postcard from Joseph to all three daughters reads, To Mary, Grace and Izzy, with best love from your ever-loving Daddy Joe. I'm keeping very well. I hope the war will be soon over. Let me get home to love you all once more. Frederick Eli Silk was born in 1861 and had already had a long naval career, including serving on the Royal Yacht, before becoming a lodgekeeper on the Duke of Northumberland's estates and taking on the role of telephone exchange attendant. In 1914, Frederick was 53 and was called up as a reservist to serve at the Royal Naval Barracks in Portsmouth. The barracks could house up to 14,000 people who all needed to be fed and kept busy. Mr Silk showed films four nights a week in the barracks gym, which could seat 4,000 people. After the war, he returned to Annick and resumed his role as lodgekeeper. He kept it up until his retirement in 1956 when he was 95 years old and spent his remaining years writing a memoir. Algernon Bobby Percy was born in 1884 and had grown up with various health issues which led to him being educated at home in Warwickshire. When the war began, he enlisted and was thrilled to gain a commission in the Royal Naval Reserve. 
he wrote an excited letter to his uncle, the seventh duke. My dear Uncle Henry, I don't know whether you've heard that I'm off with Sutherland as an RNR sub-lieutenant. I joined at Portsmouth last night, and we brace after we get our orders today. I think it is by no manner of means a hazardous expedition, and I'm very lucky to have got it. I really am most lucky, and father and mother were quite willing for me to go, and I really think it's the best thing I could do. Your affectionate nephew, Bobby. After a bout of illness in 1915, he was hospitalised, and then on sick leave, but Bobby rejoined his ship a few days before the Battle of Jutland in the North Sea on the 31st of May 1916, in which he was killed. From a ship's crew of 1,264, just 18 survived. One survivor of the battle, Peregrine Dearden, later wrote to Bobby's father, I'm writing to you now to endeavour to give you the very last news of your unfortunate son who was in the water with me after the ship had gone down. He'd been slightly wounded in the forehead when the ship blew up altogether the second time and went under. He had a life-saving waistcoat on, and so it was almost certain, I believed, that he would be saved if anyone was. After a time, everyone became rather affected by oil fuel fumes. The last thing I can remember clearly was your son offering to give me his life-saving waistcoat, for which kindly meant action I shall never forget him, although I had only known him a few days. Bobby's body was recovered off the coast of Norway in late June 1916. He was identified by his initials on the signet ring he wore. Joseph Potts from Acklington in Northumberland began working in the stables at Anna Castle in 1904, around the time that the first cars arrived at the castle. By 1914, ten years later, Joseph was one of the castle's four chauffeurs in what was now called the Stables and Mortars Department. Seven members of this department enlisted during the war. One joined the Veterinary Corps, and six, including Joseph, joined the Army Service Corps, responsible for organising supply to the troops on the front line. Potts enlisted in December 1915, serving in France and Italy. After the war, he returned to the castle as a chauffeur, and between 1928 and 1938, he drove 133,000 miles in the Duke of Northumberland's Rolls-Royce. Robert Dalgarno Crystal was a woods foreman in Annick, though born in northeast Scotland, and was among the first troops in Belgium at the beginning of the war. He wrote back to his manager, the estate's head forester, and said, We had it, hard fighting. It was terrible, and I do not know yet how I got through. I suppose I have God to thank. The artillery fire is the worst. The shells do scream. But we're getting used to it now. Robert survived throughout the war, including wounds to his arm in 1915, and appeared in newspaper clippings with titles like The Experiences of an Anic Trooper. On the 8th of November, 1918, Robert was killed in a railway accident, three days before the end of the war. Lord Alan Ean Percy, the son and heir to the 7th Duke of Northumberland, was in his mid-30s at the outbreak of war. He had already had a military career, including a period as ADC to the Governor-General of Canada, but in 1914 he joined the Grenadier Guards and was employed on the General Staff in France. For the first two years of the war, he acted as an official eyewitness, serving in the Intelligence Department and supplying battlefront descriptions to newspapers. His letters to his father reveal more candid opinions on the war and how it was progressing. On 23rd of October 1914, I am afraid you must have got a very false idea of this war if you think we have licked the Germans. It is always best to say things as they really are and not as the Daily Mail would have us believe them. On 9th November 1914, 
It is certainly the most horrible form of warfare the world has ever seen. And to think that a few months ago we were boasting of our civilization. On 5th December 1914, trench warfare seems to me to be very pointless. It is siege warfare for no object, because at the best you can only gain a few hundred yards and you are no better off when you have done it. On 16th February 1915, war is so awful that nobody will have any desire for it after this. On 13th of March 1915, the ghastliness of this war passes all one has ever dreamt of. On 21st of March 1915, of course the soldiers and sailors will have to pay, although every politician ought to be hung as a murderer. Six months before the end of the war, Alan's father died and he became 8th Duke, holding the title until his own death in 1930. After the First World War ended, many of the surviving staff who served returned to work at the castle. The Anik camp's activities began to slow and then stop, and a role of honour was created for the estate, naming most, though not all, of the people who had fought. A century later, the role of honour is still displayed in the estate office at Anik Castle. If you'd like to know more about the Northumberland Fusiliers, the regiment in which many of the castle's soldiers served, we recommend listening to episodes 13 and 14 of the Anik Castle podcast. We hope you found this selection of stories from the First World War interesting. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know on Twitter at Anacastle or by emailing podcast at anacastle.com. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and recommend us to your friends. We'll be back in two weeks with a look at another aspect of Anacastle's Castle's history. But until then, I've been Daniel. I've been Deborah. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye.